1 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning with verse 1, says this, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. That, in itself, is quite a statement coming from the Apostle Paul, uh, one who really had such great credentials as a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And he could have, in today's world, shown all of his credentials and everybody would have gone, wow, you know, what a, what a great man this is and uh, what, what a knowledgeable, uh, uh, intelligent and, and talented man he is. Well, he was all of that. But as far as he was concerned, he was a servant. And it's interesting that the word that he uses here, unlike in other places, in the Greek language in which it was written, he uses a word that uh, translates very loosely to under rower, two uh, forms of a, a couple of words that are put together by Paul to uh, talk about the status of him as a servant of God, of Jesus Christ, an under rower. It basically can be translated as an officer or a servant, uh, but one who is under the authority of some other person or, uh, in this case, deity. Uh, but he is a servant and he is subservient to his master. That's his point in making that strong statement. The word was typically used for those who were rowers in a galley of the Roman ships that sailed the seas and they were in the lower deck and they were the ones that were chained to their oars and when they had to row because of a lack of wind, it was up to them to keep the ship moving forward. And so it was a very, very difficult task and uh, as slaves they didn't really fare very well, unfortunately. But that's not the point that Paul is making with that combination of words. He's basically really just saying that he is subservient to the Master, the Lord Jesus Christ, an under rower. And then he goes on and says he's a steward of the mysteries of God. And I like that because a steward is also a servant, but it's a servant that has a special role. You may remember in the study of the book of Genesis that Joseph became a steward of Potiphar's house. And that gave him a great deal of uh, status among the other slaves. He wasn't anything like a property owner, but he was the manager of the property of Potiphar. And it was a very, very prestigious role for the servants to be given such a role as that. So Paul is saying he's an underservant of Christ, but he's also uh, a steward of those mysteries that he has introduced to the church. And again, we talked about the word mystery uh, on a few other occasions, and Paul uses it in this sense. It is something that was hidden in the past, but now has been revealed. And he calls those mysteries, and they are certainly in the New Testament revealed for us by the apostles and through the teachings of Jesus as well. So Paul, again, is a, a man just like anybody else who is simply a servant of God. And yes, he is an apostle. Yes, he has authority. But as far as his relationship with Jesus Christ is concerned, he is a steward and nothing more. Verse 2 says, Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. And that's a really very, very important statement that Paul is making, and it applies to any one of us 
who are serving the Lord in whatever capacity we may be serving him. As a leader in the church, those who are doing so, pastors or uh, deacons or uh, elders of any status, whatever that status may be, Sunday school teachers, those individuals who take upon themselves those particular roles of being uh, a minister uh, in terms of serving, and by the way, that's what a minister is, a servant. It's just another word for the same thing. But we have a responsibility as stewards that we should be faithful to that calling which Jesus has placed upon us. And there may be some who would think, well, I'm not even sure what my calling is. But as far as the Lord is concerned, every child of God has a calling. And it is a calling to serve him, to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to be part of the family of God, ministering to each other's needs. That's servanthood. That's what Jesus is looking for. And he wants us to be faithful in the doing of those things that he calls us to do. So we need to keep that in mind. Every one of us uh, is to be found faithful by the Lord. And now, that having been said, now Paul is going to talk about the fact that nobody should judge anybody for their serving the Lord. Paul says in verse 3, But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. Now the word that's used here in those several places where the word judged is the translation is also a little bit of a deviation from the typical word used for judge. Uh, the Greek word for judge is krinos. But again, Paul uses that word with an added preface that changes the meaning somewhat and is probably better translated examine. So in other words, he's saying that nobody should be examining what I do for the Lord and complaining about the fact that they don't see my or Paul's, in this case, um, effectiveness in the work that that individual servant is trying to accomplish. Others uh, are not to examine in that sense, to criticize, to rebuke, or to uh, cause anyone to feel as though he's not doing the job that he was called to do. Paul says, I don't want you to do that to me, and I don't even do it to myself, Paul says. I don't even judge myself or examine myself in that sense, because I know that ultimately the only one who is qualified to judge or examine any one of us, is our Lord. He knows all things. We don't even know all of our own motives. We don't know the motives of others. We don't know the circumstances. So because we don't know all the details that we should know in order to judge or examine properly, Paul is saying, lay off of that. Don't do it. It's not fair to the individual that you're examining. It's not fair to yourself if you're examining yourself. Paul just simply says elsewhere that we're not to esteem ourselves more highly than we are. But he also tells us, and so does James, that we are to humble ourselves. And that is something that we should always attempt to do. Never to be puffed up. But the problem with the Corinthian churches, many of them were indeed 
puffed up and thought themselves to be superior to others, including Paul. So Paul is saying, I don't want you to be judging or examining me or anybody else. I don't even do it myself. That's up to the Lord to do. His responsibility is to judge me and you. That's going to take place, by the way, at the Bema seat, judgment of Christ, when we are raised up to be with him in our resurrected bodies, we will face that judgment seat of Christ, and that is where we will receive the rewards that have been promised to us, and it is based upon his assessment of what we have done, whether good or bad, as explained elsewhere in both 1 Corinthians and in 2 Corinthians, where we've talked about this before. That's why he says in verse 5, Therefore judge nothing before the time, referring to the day of judgment that is to come, until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God, as opposed to coming from others. You know, I don't want to have any of us, and I certainly don't want it myself, to be common among us, that we would seek the praise of others. It's just simply not the right attitude to have with regard to uh, who we are to be in the body of Christ. So don't judge anything or anyone before that time. Let Jesus be the one, the sole judge of our hearts and our intents and the things that we've accomplished, hopefully for him, will be lifted before us all as gems and not wood, hay, and stubble. Paul goes on in verse 6 to talk about his own relationship and his concern of the relationship that others have. And he says in verse 6, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. And again, that phrase puffed up is a, a reference to their attitude of superiority that they've held among themselves and with regard to men who had come, like Apollos and Paul, to teach them the word of God and to instruct them in the truths of God's word. They did not quite understand that it is best if you come as a humble servant rather than a highly intellectual uh, superior uh, intellect that uh, uh, lords it over everybody else because of your great talent and abilities. Paul had no use for any of that. And so he continues to talk about that with regard to their attitude because that was indeed a very, very real problem in Corinth. And so Paul is saying in verse 7, for who makes you differ from another? And now he's going to be saying some very uh, harsh things with regard to their attitude about themselves and others. And this first part of verse 7, who makes you differ from another, he's reminding them that they aren't any different than anybody else. They have no different status than anybody else within the body of Christ. And that's still the same today as it was then. We all are one in Christ. We're all brothers and sisters in the Lord, and we're all on the same playing field. We have maybe different responsibilities, but none of those responsibilities give us any latitude to 
or privilege to take advantage of others or increase our own level of priority before the rest of the body. Paul says later on in verse 7, And what do you have that you did not receive? That's a good question for all of us to consider. Everything that we have comes from the Lord. So why should we be boasting about any of that? How is it that any of us should even consider being puffed up about what we have, whether it's wealth or whether it's power or whether it's uh, any kind of status in in the uh, body of Christ? We should never let that become a factor in how we relate to others. And that's what Paul is saying. So again, I repeat verse 7, For who makes you differ from another, and what do you have that you did not receive? Now if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? And then in verse 8, he brings this very, very sarcastic almost rebuttal to them. He says, You are already full. Now that's what they thought of themselves. You are already full. You are already rich. You have reigned as kings without us. And indeed, I could wish you did reign, that we also might reign with you. In other words, if what they were thinking were a reality, then it would be very obvious that the reality would be we're raised from the dead in our glorified bodies and we are all kings. We are all blessed beyond measure. We are all full. We are all rich because at that time we will be in glorified bodies and Paul and Peter and Apollos and all of the rest of the saints that have ever gone before us and all of us who believe in Jesus Christ will all be together basking in the glory of the Lord and we will not have any kind of status Qualifications don't really matter to God. Human qualifications, that is. The only qualification that really matters is, are you saved? Are you born again? And do you love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Paul is saying, all of you must be very careful to not allow yourselves to be seen by others as more important than the rest. Verse 9 says, For I think that God has displayed us, referring to himself and Apollos and any of the other teachers that have come their way, the apostles last, as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. It's interesting that he uses that word spectacle is actually a, a word that was used by the Roman legions when they would come from victories back to the city of Rome and they would have the great parade with a general uh, riding on his white horse in the front of the parade and then and all the spoils of the battles uh, would be following him and then the ones who had been captured and taken as slaves or to be thrown into the Colosseum to be killed by wild animals those were the spectacles, the last group. And Paul is saying, I have become a spectacle to the world and both angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, he tells us in verse 10. And that's a great idea for all of us to maybe consider. Are you a fool for Christ? You know, we talked about fools a couple of weeks ago. Uh, that are in the world thinking they're wise, but from God's perspective, they're fools. 
Well, Paul here is using the same word to basically describe himself as being a lowly individual, a fool for Christ's sake. He's not puffed up. He's not considering himself to be of any value to anyone, even to the Lord. But as a servant of the Lord, he's only doing what the Lord calls him to do. Remember, Jesus had said once uh, to his disciples, talking about servanthood, he said, a servant, if he does something for his master, it's because his master told him to do it. And so he's only doing what he was told to do and nothing more, and it should be nothing less than that. A servant should never take credit for doing something good for his master because it's what his master had asked him to do. And therefore, there's no credit that should go to that servant for that reason. It was what it was expected of him. And so it is with Paul and Apollos and Peter and James and all of the others and you and I as well. But again, he says, I think in verse 9, that God has displayed us, the apostles, last as condemned to death. And again in verse 10, that's why he says, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. Well, again, he's kind of giving them a bit of a, a slam in this contrast between himself and their attitude toward themselves. Then he goes on and continues with that thought, we are weak in verse 10, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. To the present hour we both hunger and thirst, and we are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless, being persecuted, we endure, being defamed, we entreat. We have been made as the filth of the world, the offscouring of all things until now. A good word that we probably would use instead of offscouring is the scum of the earth. And you know what that really means. Paul is placing himself at the lowest of lows with relation to others in the body of Christ. Even though they may think themselves to be superior in every way, Paul is saying, we're the apostles and we're taking this attitude toward our relationship with Jesus Christ and so should you all. So Paul is again telling the Corinthian church that they need to change their attitude toward one another and the relationship that they have with those who come as their teachers as well, including Paul. Now again, going back to the time that we looked at a few weeks ago with regard to that sectarian attitude that they had, I am of Paul, I am of, of Apollos, I am of Peter or Cephas, I am of Jesus. All of those were very, very rigidly following after a click, and they were staying in that situation that they believed to be correct, but Paul had reprimanded them for it, and he's still doing that now in this chapter. As he closes this chapter, uh, he's going to remind them why he is saying these things that he is saying to them, because he does have a responsibility, in a sense, that no other person had in the Corinthian church. He is their spiritual father. And that's what he's going to be saying next. In verse 14 it says, I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children I warn you. For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I 
have you gotten you through the gospel? What Paul is saying is, I'm the one who came to Corinth and established the church. I founded this church, and he's not bragging, he's just saying the truth of what took place. He came at a time when there was nobody teaching the word of God to this people in the city of Corinth. He came and began the ministry there. And he planted, as he said earlier, and after, after having been there a year and a half, and really very, very important to understand that he was there only because the Lord comforted him when he was very, very fearful at the beginning of his ministry there. The Lord visited him, remember, and said, I have many people in this city. Paul is addressing those many people now. After those full year and a half there in Corinth, he went on to other places, and in his third missionary journey, now a few years, perhaps four years later, he's writing this letter to the Corinthian church and reminding them who it was that came to them first. Again, Paul planted. Apollos came later and watered. In other words, he added to that ministry that Paul had begun. But Apollos wasn't a spiritual father in the sense that Paul was because he did not start the church. He only added to what Paul had begun to teach them. So that's the way it should always be. You know, I am very, very pleased to have been the person who God chose to start the ministry here at Safe Harbor Church. And I've really been blessed by the fact that this is a church where I have had the privilege of teaching the Word of God to all of you who have been faithful to come week after week. That doesn't mean I'm your spiritual father. I'm adding to what somebody else had done in your life. Almost all of you, I think without exception, were already believers when you first started attending at Safe Harbor Church. So somebody else came before and instructed you and by the Spirit of God brought you to faith in Jesus Christ. That would be your spiritual father. I just happened to be another teacher that came along the way at the time that God put me here. It was convenient for all of you to be a part of that ministry, and I'm so grateful that you have joined in this ministry, and hopefully that we all will continue to be together as the body of Christ here at Safe Harbor Church in Searsport, Maine. But Paul is saying, I am your spiritual daddy in Christ Jesus. I have begotten you, he ends at verse 15 with those words, I have begotten you through the gospel. Therefore, he says in verse 16, I urge you, imitate me. That is an amazing statement. Who can say such things? Imitate me. Do what I do. Be like what I am like. Live your life in a way that will glorify the Lord, and you can indeed be imitators of Paul. I choose to be imitators of Paul because of what I read in the Word of God with regard to Paul's hunger for God's Word and desire to teach God's Word and everything that I see written about Paul or by Paul leads me to say, I want to be like him. And that's the way I would love it if people would see it in the same way toward what I do, what I say, how I live. I would only say, be imitators of me as I imitate 
Christ. And that's really what Paul is implying here. Christ is his Lord, and he does indeed imitate Christ, and he'll tell us that later in another place. But here he's saying, because he is the father of this church, they are to imitate him, and not to be puffed up, not to be arrogant, not to be selfish, not to be overly proud of their status in the world. It's a great challenge for all of us. But to imitate Paul or to imitate Christ should be everyone's goal. Verse 17 says, For this reason I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. Now, as he's having this letter written by his person who is taking the dictation that Paul is giving, Paul didn't usually write the letters, or at least all of them. He had somebody else writing them for him. But it wasn't Timothy writing this. He had already sent Timothy ahead of his writing this letter to Macedonia and ultimately to Corinth. And he's going to repeat that in chapter 16 as we come to the end of this book of First Corinthians, we'll see that that's the case. He has already sent Timothy to them to prepare them for this letter that they will receive by the hand of Chloe and her household. He says again, for this reason I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord. Remember, on Paul's first missionary journey, Paul didn't go as far as he did on his second missionary journey. He went to most of the territories uh, very near Syria, north of Israel, and into parts of Turkey today, but he didn't go very far beyond that. He came back with Barnabas on his first mission, missionary journey to Antioch in Syria. And then a few, perhaps years later, Paul again began to move forward with another missionary journey, this time with Silas. And this time on their second missionary journey, they went through the area of what is now Asia Minor, and they wanted to go to uh, Bithynia, but the Spirit of God wouldn't allow them. They wanted to go up into the Galatian region. The Spirit of God wouldn't allow them. But they came to Lystra, and it was there that Paul met up with Timothy on his second missionary journey. Timothy was with him. He came with Paul. Paul took him on the rest of his journey on that second missionary journey where they went to Philippi and then to Thessalonica and then to Berea and then down to Paul alone to Athens. And then he, after having gotten to Athens, called for Timothy and Silas to meet him in Athens, but they didn't come right away, and he moved on down to Corinth and began the ministry there, and that's where Timothy and Silas finally caught up with him. Now, Timothy and Silas both were very, very important helpers of Paul. But Paul says he is the father of Timothy because he brought Timothy to the Lord. What a great privilege it was for Paul to bring Timothy to the Lord. Timothy became a very, very important uh, member of the Church of Jesus Christ and a leader in Ephesus, ultimately. But Paul uses him tremendously 
throughout his missionary work that he does after having met up with him on a second missionary journey. Timothy is a co-worker with Paul and a trusted individual uh, by Paul. So he entrusts Timothy with this mission to go to the Corinthians to correct them and to help them understand what his understanding of the Word of God is and convey that to them so that they will be able to do rightly as they serve the Lord together. He'll remind you of my ways, he says in the latter part of verse 17, as I teach everywhere in every church. Paul taught the same gospel everywhere he went. He first went to the synagogues, if there was a synagogue in the cities that he would go to, and he tried to convince the Jews in the synagogues that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, there were some Jews who became followers of Christ as a result of that, but many of them caused problems for Paul over those times that he was in the synagogues teaching the Word of God because they rejected him, they rejected Christ. But some did come to the Lord, both Jews and Gentiles, and that's how the churches were established. He'd go to the synagogues first, to the Jew first, and then also to the Gentiles, and that is exactly what happened in Corinth as well. And he uh, has ministered to the people in Corinth. Now he's sending Timothy back there to help them, to remind them everything that he has been teaching in all of the churches. He wants Timothy to convey that same uh, set of uh, understanding of God's word to those people in Corinth. Lastly, in verse 18, again he's reminding them, now some of you are puffed up as though I was not coming to you. Because he's sending Timothy, they were thinking, well, if he's not going to come then because he's sending Timothy, why should we even listen? Well, that's what Paul is finally addressing here. He says, some of you are puffed up as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you shortly if the Lord wills. And that's always important to add, if the Lord wills. You can express your desire, your intent to do something, but if it's not the Lord's will, then please don't try to do it. You know, make sure that you're in the will of the Lord before you take a step to move in a direction or not. Paul is saying, I will come to you if the Lord wills for me to do so. It's his desire. He desired to go to Rome with the same desire. And ultimately, he accomplished both of those desires. But it was in God's timing and in God's ways. But he says, I will come to you shortly if the Lord wills, and I will know, not by the word of those who were puffed up, but the power. What he's saying is, look, if those who are puffed up are attempting to be leaders in the church, then there needs to be the power of the Holy Spirit backing them up. There needs to be the presence of God's Spirit in their teaching. The anointing of the Spirit has to be real, and they have to be accurate in their teaching of the Word of God. Paul had told Timothy, and he wrote in his first letter to Timothy, that he is to, and all of us are to, study to show ourselves approved unto God, rightly dividing the word of truth. And that's what Paul had told Timothy, that's what Paul is here telling everyone in the churches, and he's reminding them, this is how it has to be. And if you're puffed up, you may have flowery words, flowery presentations, you may be eloquent in speech, but if you don't have the Word of God to back up what you're saying, it is absolutely of no value. And he explains why in verse 20. For the kingdom of God is not in word, 
but in power. You see, they relied on words. They were very, in their Gentile attitudes, in their Gentile upbringings, they looked at those who had a good handle on words, eloquent in speech, and they lifted them up and they looked at them as being of great oratory skill. And because of their great oratory skill, they were elevated above the rest of the people in the region. Paul saying the church should be absolutely far away as possible from such ideals. The kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. And again, the power comes only from the Spirit of God, not from men. Not by power, not by might, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. So we ask the question in verse 21 to end the chapter, Now, what do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod for chastening? Or in love and a spirit of gentleness? Paul is basically giving them the two options, and he says, here are your options, you choose. You've understood what I have said, then you should know that I want to come in love. But if you haven't changed your attitude when I get there, then it's going to have to be a different approach. And Paul doesn't want to lay on a heavy guilt trip or, or burden upon them and be uh, mean and ordinary. That's not his style. It's not his intent. He wants to come to them in love. But he wants to make sure that if they haven't changed their attitude, then by the time he does arrive, there's going to be some straightening out. And he's going to be doing it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, in the subsequent trap chapters, we're going to see some really serious issues that are also part of the problem in Corinth. Chapter 5 in particular, he's going to go right into this as he begins to unwrap the really major issues that are hindering the growth and the uh, effect, the Im impact that the Corinthian church is having on the communities around them. And there is a serious problem, and it has to be dealt with. So Paul's going to not hold back any punches with regard to what has to be done. And so in verse 1 of chapter 5 it says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality is, is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his own father's wife. That's so sick. And Paul is saying, this is absolutely not Christian at all. It's absolutely against everything that a Christian should even be a part of. There is no room for any kind of sexual immorality. But this individual has gone so far over the top with his immorality that Paul is saying, Oy vey. How can this possibly be? Why are you allowing such a one in your midst? That's his, that's his attitude towards what's happening here as he's been given this information by the servants or the household of Chloe that have conveyed this situation to Paul. He's now addressing this one issue and he's hitting it hard. He says in verse 2, And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. 
you need to understand that there is room, a place, for Christian judging Christian in the sense that if they are doing immoral things, they have to be dealt with. And if the individual who is doing immoral things is not willing to change, then the only way to deal with that is to have that individual taken out of the assembly, excommunicated. And then the reason for that, though, is not to cause that individual to fall away from Christ, God forbid. It is for the purpose of restoring that brother or sister to the Lord. You do it in love. You do it with an open-door policy. You do it with an effort to say you are doing such a terrible thing that is going to harm you and others that are associated with what you are doing, and you need to correct that now before it's too late. And we're warning you, and if you're not willing to do that, you are going to have to bear the consequences. But we can't allow you to continue in the fellowship if you are participating in such terrible, ungodly things that are against what we stand for as believers in Christ. That's the attitude that we are to have. And Paul has that attitude. So he says in verse 3, For indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, I have already judged him as though I were present, who has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. If he's not going to change, he's saying, let the Lord take his life. It would be better for him to die even though he is a believer. If he's not willing to come back to the place of humility and, and seek forgiveness and reconciliation, then Paul is saying, I am willing to give him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit, his soul, may continue in the day of the Lord. Now that individual implied by this is still saved, but he'll have no reward. Paul talked about that in the earlier chapter in chapter 3 talks about it again in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The individual must be excommunicated. And it's for the purpose of bringing him back into the fellowship. If he will not, then God will deal with him in that harsh way. Then in verse 6, again, they had no problems with this. And he says, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Keep in mind, Paul is saying to the church, all of us as well, just one little sin, little, all sin is an abomination to God. One sin being committed by one individual affects the whole body. That's what leaven does. It spreads. It affects the whole lump. And that's why leaven, as it is given metaphorically in the scriptures, is a wonderful picture of the effect of sin in our lives. And it needs to be dealt with. You need to take the leaven out in order to save the whole lump of bread. Because he wants this particular lump, the body of Christ, which is 
of great importance to Jesus that we would be undefiled. Leaven defiles. We want to be unleavened as the feast of unleavened bread was to the Jews. Unleavened bread is to Jesus in much the same way. It was a requirement of the Lord that there be no leaven, no impurity, no imperfection, no sin, all of it unblemished and prepared in the way that God wants us to be prepared for that day that we get to be with Him for all eternity. Your glorying is not good, Paul says, again in verse 6, do not... Do you not know a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump. Since you truly are unleavened, for indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Again, he's referring back to the Old Testament feast of Passover, during which the feast of unleavened bread was also observed. And they're tied together. Christ is our Passover, and unleavened bread is essential. That's why he says, you are unleavened, a new lump, because you've purged out the old leaven. That is so, so very necessary. Lastly, in verse 8, he says, Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Sincerity is a simple statement of being, I guess, visible to all. An open book. Sincere. The Greek word is used in the way that they would take a vase that was cracked and they would cover over the crack with wax so that the crack couldn't be seen. It would look beautiful on the outside when that was done. And the sales could be made of that vase to anyone who would come along needing a nice quality vase and they would look at that and they'd say, oh, that's so beautiful, I'll buy that one. They'd take it home, they set it up on the windowsill and in the heat of the sun, the wax melts and exposes the crack. They're unsincere. Those vases are unsincere because they've exposed the crack that was hidden by the wax. That's the word that Paul is using here when he's saying that <clears throat> he wants the church to be sincere. Vessels without any wax covering the cracks. True perfection in these vases that God has made. Remember, we're the clay, God is the potter, and God makes us vessels of clay. He wants to convert those vessels of clay into vessels of honor. And He can only do that if we are willing to let Him mold the clay and remove all of the imperfections. And that's what we should be doing. We are to be sincere. And unleavened bread of sincerity and of truth. It's so, so very important for us to know that there is God's truth. It is absolute truth. It is never, ever changeable. It is never, ever 
stained by wrong assumptions. It is never gray. It is always black or white. God's truth is perfect truth. Two plus two is always four. God's truth is always God's truth. When Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth? He had a Gentile perspective because he knew that in his way of looking things and in the way that all of the people he knew looked at him, truth was only what you say it is. But as far as God is concerned, truth is what God says it is and nothing less. So we are to be sincere and we are to be unleavened in that sincerity and in truth. God help us by His Spirit to bring us to that place where we will be perfect before Him, unblemished, without spot or wrinkle, in the day that we stand before Him. That is my prayer for us all. May it be so in Jesus' name. God bless.